finance. It seems hard to learn, but is it really? Wall Street likes to overcomplicate everything money related, confusing a lot of people. Join us on this podcast as we help break down the world of money for you to understand from a relatable perspective. This is Finance Simplified. Hey everyone, welcome to Finance Simplified, the official podcast for Street Fits. We're here to simplify finance for you so you can actually understand it to better your future. My name is Rohan, and if you've listened to the introductory episode, then you'll know that I'm the host for this podcast. This episode is the very first official episode where we have a guest, making it very special. I'm super excited to say that for today's episode, my guest is Josh Stein, a managing partner at Threshold Ventures, one of Silicon Valley's most impressive and successful venture capital firms. We'll be simplifying the world of venture capital in our conversation. I couldn't have asked for a better, more accomplished guest for the first episode of this podcast. I've known Josh for the past two years, and every time I talk to him, I always learn something new. I'm sure that today will be no different. Josh has been a venture capitalist since 2004 and has invested in the likes of Box, Redfin, Angelist, Twilio, and so many more. Prior to joining Threshold, Josh was a co-founder at Viaphone. Josh holds a bachelor's from Dartmouth and an MBA from Stanford. He is also a graduate of the prestigious Kaufman Fellows Program. Josh also made the Forbes Midas list, which is a ranking of the 100 best venture capitalists in the world, three times in a row from 2013 to 2015. Josh is truly the definition of a successful venture capitalist. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rowan. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, so let's just get started with kind of like an intro to venture capital. In a few sentences, could you kind of describe what venture capital is and, and why it exists? Sure. So uh, venture capital is a form of private equity, um, by which I mean that we are investing in private companies, um, historically, usually technology companies, although more recently, as technology has penetrated really just about every industry in the world, um, a much broader range of companies, including things like consumer packaged goods and the like. We work with entrepreneurs, typically at very early stages. Uh, these are companies where they may not yet have a product in market or any revenues. It might be more of an idea and a team. And we provide them with equity financing, which means that we invest a certain amount of money in exchange for a percentage of the company. Um, we then partner with those entrepreneurs as they build the business. And if things go well, they will either sell the business or take it public at some point in the future. And we will then be able to sell our shares in the business, hopefully for a very large gain. Josh brings up a few terms that I want to explain further here. They are shares, private equity, and going public. Let's start by explaining what shares are. At some point in your life, you've heard of the concept of shares, also known as stock, which refer to portions of ownership or equity in a company. If you have a pizza and it's cut into 10 slices and you take two of those slices, you own two shares of that pizza. If you wanted, you could half each of your two slices to have four slices of pizza and give someone else those slices. The same idea holds true for investing, except instead of pizzas getting cut into slices for people to eat, companies get cut into shares for investors to buy and sell. Next, I'll explain the difference between public and private in investing. Josh mentions that venture capital is a form of private equity which means they invest in private companies. But what does that mean? The main difference between a private and a public company is who gets to invest in their shares. Let's start with public. 
A public company is a company whose shares are traded on a public stock exchange. A stock exchange is the market you go to for buying and selling stocks. The important thing to remember is that the shares listed on a public stock exchange can be sold to the general population. It's like eBay, but instead of buying home decor or cooking pots, you, as a member of the general population, are buying shares of companies. In the US, we have two main public stock exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, which is very famous, and the NASDAQ, which lists the shares of many tech companies. Venture capital firms invest in private companies, and being private simply means that the company's shares aren't listed on a public stock exchange. Therefore, private equity refers to buying and selling the shares of private companies, and by definition, it can't be done on a public stock exchange. Instead, there are agreements put in place by private equity investors like VCs and the private company that include the amount of shares the private company is selling to private investors. Because public stocks can be bought and sold by the general population, they are regulated by several organizations. The main one is the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. Private companies can become public, and they do so by registering with the SEC to list their shares on a public stock exchange. The day the private company begins selling their shares to the public is known as an initial public offering. The company then officially becomes public. VCs or any investor who held shares of the company when it was private can now sell their shares to the public, which is what Josh meant by going public and selling shares they own for a large gain. Public companies are subject to more regulation and requirements than private companies are because their shares are sold to the general population which may not have direct access to the management of a company to ask them about company information. One such requirement public companies must follow is releasing their financial information to the public. Because private companies have agreements with their private investors for investments, they don't need to release their information to the general public as they get to be choosy with who they release information to. Now, back to the conversation. So you usually sell those shares on, if the company goes public or in an IPO, right? You'd usually sell those shares to the public or if on the private markets, you would just sell it to maybe another firm? Yeah, it could be that or, or sometimes also a what we call a strategic acquisition. So it might be a company like Google or Microsoft or Salesforce buying one of our companies. So we, we have sort of an interesting business. We raise money from institutional investors. Those are typically um, large pools of capital like pension funds, university and nonprofit endowments, and some other uh, vehicles like insurance companies. Um, we raise that in funds, in our case, about $300 million per fund. We'll invest that fund in terms of making initial investments over a two to three year period. And then those funds are structured uh, for a 10 or 15 year lifespan. So we're making our initial investments in the first two years of the fund, working with the companies for typically about seven or eight years. And then towards the eighth, ninth, tenth year of the fund are when the companies are generally ready to exit either through IPO or acquisition. There's some other more corner cases of how we would get liquidity, but those are the two primary ones. Josh just mentioned the term liquidity, which is a very important concept in finance. Liquidity refers to the ability to buy or sell an asset, like shares in a business, at its most recent market price. Basically, liquidity is a measure of how easily and quickly you can buy or sell something at a price equal to or close to its last price for cash. Examples of liquid assets are stocks because you can usually buy and sell them at a price close to their most recent price 
and do so in a matter of seconds. An illiquid asset is something that you cannot easily sell or buy for an amount of cash that is equal to or close to that asset's last price. An example is your home because it can take months to find someone to sell it to and its price often varies a lot. It is therefore more illiquid than it is liquid. Liquidity is an important thing investors look for in any investment because they want to have the ability to convert the value of their investment into an equivalent or close enough amount of cash. For Josh and other VCs, the ability to sell shares of companies they have invested in to buyers is important because at the end of the day, they need to return cash, not shares in companies, to their investors. And the way they convert shares to cash is by selling those shares that they own. It's important to understand the difference between the two, as it's fundamentally the way VCs make money. Back to the conversation. That's interesting. It's a lot of money that you raise at the same time. Is that kind of typical for a firm in the Valley, at least, uh, $300 million? You know, you'd be surprised. It sounds like a lot of money. We're actually one of the smaller uh, mainstream firms. Uh, the trend over the last 10 years has been for venture firms to get much larger. Some of that is driven by later stage investing. So we tend to invest in companies where, again, they're quite small. Let's say maybe under a million of revenue would be on average. Um, but companies are staying private for quite a long time. So companies like Airbnb, for example, uh, or Stripe are very large companies in terms of their revenue and headcount and such. Um, but they're raising money uh, in private markets. So you'll see rounds where companies are raising many hundreds of millions of dollars. And the investors that are leading those rounds are typically raising funds that are uh, measured in the billions of dollars. So with a $300 million fund, we're considered more of a boutique uh, firm. But our focus is very much laser focused on the Series A financing. So you, you mentioned Series A financing. Uh, could you go into more depth of like the different funding stages and funding rounds? Sure. So venture has an interesting history. I mean, venture really started, uh, I suppose it's been going on uh, in one way or another for a very long period in the sense of there have been people who have had ideas for new companies and have then required capital to get those ideas off the ground and, and you know, have convinced various people to back them. I suppose you could go all the way back to like the Medici's back in the Renaissance. I think one of the challenges for entrepreneurs in general is most forms of capital are more comfortable um, investing in debt than in equity. And if they're investing in equity, they generally want to have a business that they view as proven. So by proven, uh, certainly having revenues or, or even better, having, you know, consistent earnings. Um, a business with consistent earnings can usually raise financing that's secured by um, those earnings. I think what's harder is when a company doesn't have a product yet and maybe will require a decent amount of capital just to get that product off the ground. And really in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in Silicon Valley with, with companies like, uh, like Intel and Genentech, you started to see the professionalization of what we now call venture capital, which was people organizing funds where the funds were structured in a way that aligned with the um, way that these companies are built. So for example, when we raise, I mentioned we raised $300 million fund, our investors commit to our fund. Um, they give us as the general partner, they're called limited partners, our investors, as the general partner of the fund, we have complete discretion over how that money uh, is investment and the decisions of those funds. And our investors can't take their money out because we're making illiquid investments uh, for at least 10 years. And usually um, there are extension periods beyond that. So it's really quite an interesting thing where our investors are saying, hey, we trust you to manage this money for 10 or 15 years and give us complete discretion to do that. 
you know, it works well because with uh, with early stage tech companies, it may be some time until the company is ready to be attractive to a broader market of investors. So entrepreneurs need to know that they're raising capital from a firm that's going to have a long-term orientation building the business with them. Um, today, the market is broken into different stages. There's pre-seed, um, which is typically just an idea. So if you had, let's say, an idea with maybe a colleague or two that you wanted to start the company, you might raise a few hundred thousand dollars from uh, pre-seed investors. Those are often families and friends or what we call angel investors. There are seed stage funds that will invest anywhere from maybe half a million to a couple million dollars that will help you get the initial prototypes uh, built, maybe um, the initial product in the hands of a few customers. There are Series A funds, which is where we play. Series A nowadays in venture, the, the terminology has moved around a bit over the last decade or so. Most typically, it means companies that have some initial product market validation, by which I mean if you're a software company, maybe you have a couple dozen customers, maybe you have half a million or a million in revenue. And then there are rounds beyond what we do. So there's Series B, which I do mostly software investing, and software might be five or 10 million of revenue. Series C might be, call it 20 million of revenue. And then really beyond that, the letters become less relevant. You're pretty squarely in the range of growth investing at that point. What typically happens as companies get more mature is, is the risk tends to get uh, more bounded and smaller. So if you have a software company and you're at, let's say, 50 million in revenue, you know there's an asset there, you know there's value. So as an investor, the downside case tends to not be uh, zero. It tends to be maybe a partial return of capital. Whereas if you go to the earliest stages, seed and pre-seed, zero would be the most common outcome uh, for their investment. Right. And it's just kind of a testament to kind of how risky going on from just investing in two guys and a dog, right? And like a pre-seed fund or a seed fund, right? Uh, versus, you know, kind of series A and what you guys are doing at Threshold. What specific industries do you specialize in at Threshold? At Threshold, we're really, our whole strategy is focused around uh, how do we work with a small number of companies so that we can engage with them at a deep level. So we will typically do 10 or 12 new investments per year, uh, and we have five investing partners. So I've been doing the business for 15 years now, another um, five plus years on the startup side. And one of our core beliefs is that teams can uh, investing teams become less efficient as they scale in terms of people. We think five to seven people make the best decisions, and we our sort of strategy kind of starts there. You know, when we're working at the Series A, we also think it's important to be deeply engaged uh, with the companies. We're not just picking stocks and then kind of along for the ride. We are very much acting as business partners to the founders, and so for us to be able to have the time to do that, but also to be knowledgeable enough about the sector they're pursuing, you know, we can only do that for so many. In terms of specific areas, we broadly invest in four sectors. Um, enterprise or, or business to business. So companies that are creating products that are sold to companies. So like something like a, a Salesforce or a Box or a Twilio would go in that category. Uh, consumer, um, which would be things like the Facebooks and Twitters and the like, or also potentially consumer products. Healthcare-related technologies, which is a relatively uh, newer area for us in the last five to 10 years, where uh, healthcare is the largest industry in the country. And so we're seeing lots of really interesting innovation around the business of healthcare, but also how healthcare is delivered um, using things like machine learning, for example. To uh, We have a company called Imogen that does machine learning to process radiology data. So to give you a faster and more accurate interpretation of, let's say, an x-ray than a doctor. And then we have a fourth category, which is sort of a catch-all for us, which we call disruptive. And those are tend to be things that are science-intensive, bigger bets. We have an autonomous vehicle company called Zooks that is a full-stack 
EV company building a car and everything. We have a company that is creating meat that's not an alternative to meat. It's not vegetable-based meat like Impossible or Beyond. It's actual meat, but it is grown, not born, by which I mean we are growing uh, the meat through an industrial process as opposed to having animals that are born and then killed for their meat. Um, so those are the four broad categories. Interestingly, a lot of the deals we do end up straddling the line between one or two of those categories in practice. Interesting. And and Memphis Meats, I've looked into them. They're doing some really interesting things. I, I want to kind of switch gears and talk about how you got into venture as well. Yeah, sure. So I, I always loved technology since I was a teen. When I went to college was right when Mark Andreessen was um, writing the NCSA browser at, at Mosaic, which became Netscape and really invented the web. So coming out of college in 1995 was really sort of the start of the original internet era. So I knew I wanted to do technology. I ended up getting recruited to a software startup called uh, NetObjects, the product manager. Uh, then I went to business school. I ended up starting a company coming out of business school with some colleagues from NetObjects. And uh, DFJ, which is the predecessor firm to Threshold, was my Series A lead investor. And so that's how I got to know the uh, team there. So you were a startup founder, and then you raised money, and then you just built that relationship with DFJ, now Threshold, and that's how you got started? Yeah, I think you know it's two sides of the same coin in terms of using technology to make the world a better place and solve big challenges. I think the biggest difference between the two is I think as an operator, a lot of what I did was I, I describe it sort of like in uh, football terms, you know, you're moving the ball forward a little bit every day and you eventually will get there. So it's, you know, shipping a product might take three months or six months or a year, but you know, it's about chipping away at it um, slowly. And it's a very monomaniacal focus on your business and your market uh, going very deep. As an investor, it's a little different where I'm working with you know, six to 10 companies plus looking at lots of new companies as potential investments. And so there's a lot of context switching between thinking about this industry or thinking about that industry. I think that investing and operating are, are both you know, two sides of the same coin in technology. When you're an operator, you're very deep and focused. And it's uh, you know, sort of a monomaniacal focus on, on your business and industry. As an investor, you're much shallower, but much broader. And so I do a lot of context switching of thinking about this industry, another industry, and then maybe a third industry of a company that's pitching us that day. I personally like the context switching part. Um, it's a little bit like every day is a fire drill, but I actually find that very invigorating. But there's definitely a lot of people who prefer more the satisfaction of a job well done. And so with venture, there is sort of like the... Um, you just are sort of always on to the next fire drill, it seems like. It's also much more of a coaching, as a, it's like being a coach instead of a player. I partner with entrepreneurs, I advise the entrepreneurs, but I'm not in charge of them. I'm not their boss. It's their company to run. And so I think you also have a personality, have to have the personality where you uh, like doing that. I think great players are sometimes great coaches, but often, uh, often not. And I think it's a different skill set. So that, that was a pretty <laughs> in-depth uh, answer for what the differences between what you did as a startup operator and what you do as an investor. As an investor, what does your daily routine look like at Threshold? Do you spend most of your time listening to entrepreneurs pitch or do you spend most of your time with the companies that you already have invested in? Really great question. I would say my day typically breaks down into roughly three thirds. So the first third would be working with our existing companies, whether that's uh, board meetings or uh, phone calls with, or meetings with the entrepreneurs, helping them close a candidate, close a customer, think through a strategic issue, um, what have you. About a third of my time is spent um, meeting with new companies that we're considering for investment. And 
we meet with a lot of companies to give you a sense of scale. I mentioned we have five investing partners. The five of us meet with about, on average, 250 unique companies per quarter, so about 1,000 a year, of which we end up investing in 10 to 12. So it's, it is definitely a, uh, a business where you have to sort through a lot of potential opportunities to find the ones that you think really have a lot of merit. And then another third of my day is really what I'd say sort of everything else. And that probably broadly breaks into what I would call thesis development, which is thinking about where is the puck going in technology and in the markets? And what is our thesis for, for areas that we'd be interested in investing? It's important to not just be reactive to the things that are coming through the door. Uh, and then also, I run the fund now with my partner, Emily Melton. And we ourselves are a business and we have customers, both the entrepreneurs, but also limited partners. We have employees, et cetera. And so there's probably 10 or 15% of my time that goes to just managing threshold. Right. So with that management, you, you, you mentioned that you're running the business right now. And that means you have to kind of compete with other venture firms for limited partners as well as entrepreneurs. So I, I want to talk mm-hmm. about that idea of, of smart money and how you define it and view it, as well as how venture capitalists compete based on that idea of smart money. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, money really is the ultimate commodity, right? You know, my million dollars is the same as anyone else's million dollars. Um, so if I'm an entrepreneur and I have options of who I'm going to raise money from, and good companies always have options uh, because there's, you know, capital seeking to um, invest with them, you know, how we win is based on everything that we bring around that. So I think a big chunk of that is that we have very relevant experience in building similar companies. So if I'm sitting down with a SaaS company now, I can say, look, I uh, you know, had a ground floor seat uh, as we were building companies like Box and, and Twilio to really significant scale and IPOs. And at this point, I've probably worked with 20 or 30 companies in my career. As companies scale, the challenges they face are always a little bit unique to each company, but there's a lot of ones that are pretty common. For example, there's a classic breakpoint for companies of between 50 and 100 employees where communication tends to break down because a lot of things that you are relying on informal communication, hallway conversations just don't work anymore when you have more than a certain number of people. Or whether you're thinking about upgrading management, let's say your VP of sales is popping out in their capability and how do you think about replacing him or her? You know, those are things that we've seen before. And we can, much like a good teacher, I think we can help uh, founders avoid making the same old mistakes. So I, I sometimes say to people, if I do my job well, you'll make new mistakes instead of making the old classic mistakes. Um, so we can sort of help them see around corners for a little bit. There's also a lot of things that we invest in as a company to try and make sure we're adding value. So for example, I have a talent partner who works for us who was the head of executive recruiting at Box a marketing partner who was a partner at a major PR agency. Um, Both of those resources are available to our portfolio companies where we help them source executive talent and uh, help with their marketing and awareness. You know, but it's really a, a broad range of things. I think at the end of the day, what most founders we talk to end up doing is talking to our existing founders and CEOs and saying, hey, how helpful are Josh and the team at Threshold? And the answers they get are what help us win competitive deals. Josh here really elaborates on the idea of smart money, which is so important that it really forms the basis for competition in the venture capital industry today. He opens by explaining money as the ultimate commodity, which it really is. As a startup founder, if you go out to raise money to fund your venture and all you're looking for is money, you can get it from anyone. In terms of just the amount, my $1 million is the same as anyone else's million dollars. But there's a reason why startups go to venture capitalists instead of anyone with money. 
That's because startups view venture capitalists as smart money. When startups receive investment, they give up equity to their investors. When a company is young and needs help growing, they may want more than just money. They want strategic advice, connections, and other helpful things that can add value and aid in growing their business beyond just a pile of cash. Smart money is therefore money as well as the investor's advice and other things of value that they can bring to the table. As you can guess, if there's smart money, then there's also dumb money. Dumb money refers to an investor who simply invests and doesn't help the startup founder in any way with growing their business other than providing piles and piles of cash. Startups can receive multiple offers for investment, but as Josh says, the way VCs win deals is through bringing something else to the table beyond just money. According to Josh, those things are like experience helping startups through problems, helping connect them with potential talent and customers, and much more. Now let's get back to talking. You mentioned um, some companies that you had invested in, uh, Box and Twilio. Uh, those would be considered one of your more successful investments. Uh, Box went public, so did Twilio. What made you decide to invest in Box and Twilio and some of your other more successful investments? Yeah, you know, in, in venture, there's often a debate between, you know, the market versus the team. And I think the reality is you need both. So I think you need a market that is either large and ripe for disruption because of some technology trend often. So like, for example, I would say that Amazon didn't create the retail industry, but it significantly disrupted it. And the enabling technology was the web. I think that sometimes you have new markets that are created. Um, so for example, uh, smartphones were a category that to a large degree, Apple really created with the iPhone that did not uh, to a large degree really exist prior to that, um, or certainly not at, at anything close to the scale. I tend to probably be a little bit more on the side of trying to back people that I find to be really inspiring and, and brilliant and articulate. Um, in my experience, uh, talented teams and people will often find the market opportunity over time, even if they didn't have it quite right to begin with. And then I think you know our name threshold comes from something that we talk about quite a lot in our investing process, which is threshold effects. So in, um, a threshold is where um, you have a sudden rapid response in response to a stimuli when you pass a quantitative limit. So for example, in biology, uh, if you're dosing with medicine and you're taking, let's say, uh, a certain amount of milligrams per kilogram of body weight there, uh, you would not see any effect until you hit a certain threshold and then you see a therapeutic effect very dramatically. So you know what we're looking for is what's going to be that enabling factor that is going to uh, help drive the market. For example, with autonomous driving, that's an idea that people have had for a long time. What has made it possible in recent years was the advent of a technology called deep neural network in the machine learning field, which were a uh, methodology and approach that increased the efficacy of those algorithms by orders of magnitude. So that'd be a good example of kind of, you know, we um, we've been interested in autonomous driving really since I've been in the business for 15 years, but we were waiting for the enabling technology to create the threshold potential for it to sort of finally take off. So I tend to focus on the people, but I think it's people market. And then, you know, there's a bit of timing that comes into play as well. That, that brings up another question. With, with people, there's some qualitative aspects such as drive and attitude of the people and the founders. How, how do you judge those? non-quantitative, non-numerical aspects of people? Yeah, you know, I think the most simple test for me is as I'm sitting and listening to an entrepreneur, I'll find myself thinking, is she inspiring me? So as she's describing her vision, you know, am I being captivated by it? Am I uh, feeling like, gosh, I have to be involved with this? 
I think as an entrepreneur, you are fundamentally attracting things around you. You're attracting people to your team. You're attracting capital to your business. You're attracting customers. You're really taking this sort of kernel of an idea and willing it into reality and the persuasiveness and um, ability to storytell a vision is really a critical skill. I think that, you know, I also look to validate um, so one, one thing is sort of the, the person's storytelling and, and vision ability. I think execution is also important. You can't just have vision, you have to be able to execute. And I think that uh, we tend to rely on references and talking to people that have worked with this person before. And we say, hey, is she a capable manager? Has she you know, been able to scale companies? Is she, does she meet her commitments? Is she you know, motivated by the right things? Um, generally speaking, for example, people who are motivated primarily by money don't do very well as entrepreneurs because it's just too hard. If you're just trying to make money, frankly, there are easier ways to do it. Uh, and if that is your primary motivation, when things get hard, you will likely burn out. The best entrepreneurs are more motivated by the product and by a desire to sort of change um, the world to suit their vision. I would flag no entrepreneur is perfect or no person is perfect. And we're very cognizant of that. Um, so someone might be a tremendous visionary. They might be incredibly driven, but they might be an inexperienced manager. We're totally fine with that. And part of our job is to say, how do we put the right people around the founder to bring out the, um, the best aspects of them and to help buttress them um, where they're not as strong? Um, I think that's really a key part of what we can do as as board members and investors, but we like to go in and try to have a, a sense of what, you know, uh, what the strengths and weaknesses of any given founder is um, when we make the investment. So venture capital is considered to be growth investing. I myself, I've been learning more about value investing, uh, where the main idea mm -hmm. is to buy the stock at a very cheap discount and then let the market get more rational and then push the price up and you make money. For, for venture capital firms, and recently in the news, there's a trend of overvaluation. And that's kind of been shown with Lyft and Uber going on the down uh, when they go public because they're not as highly valued anymore. Uh, so how much does the price or value matter and how flexible are venture capitalists when they value a company? So I think with, the, the, with Lyft and Uber, you're referring to the late stage private rounds, which were really, I would argue, fairly indistinguishable from public uh, market valuations. I mean, those were you know, very, very large rounds by, by investors who primarily play in the, in the public market. I think if you're talking about the early stage technology investing, by definition, we can't be value investors because we're investing where there's an idea and there's very few, if any, assets right. or, or revenue or certainly earnings. Um, I think at some level, all companies ultimately are valued uh, based on a, a future DCF with a, and I would sort of double underline the word future. And so what we're trying to do is project forward in time and say, how big could this business be in 10 or 15 years? Um, I remember if we're trying to exit the business and say 10 years, I actually care about how big it'll be in 15 because when I exit in 10 years, investors then might be looking five years forward from where we are. And I'll say, and I say to myself, can this be a business that can be worth many billions of dollars in a 15 year time frame, which generally means, you know, many hundreds of billions, if not billions uh, in revenue. But that, you know, it takes a lot of imagination. We are, you know, we're really having to make a lot of assumptions um, that are very uh, forward leading. And, you know, the reason that that sort of works for us is we have a pretty wide aperture by which I mean, in equity investing, uh, unless you're going short, uh, but if you're, a, if you're a long equity investor, the worst you can do is to lose all of your capital. So if I invest a million dollars, I can lose the million to be at zero. 
But it's not uncommon for us on the upside to make 10x or in some cases, 100x or more. So it's a very asymmetric business where when we're right, we're really, really right. Um, We certainly try to not be wrong, to to be wrong as infrequently as we can. But when given how unproven and therefore risky the businesses are that we're investing in, we are occasionally wrong and lose all of our money on some investment. Um, But the overall returns of the fund can be excellent because we have some wins that are very, very large in their magnitude. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because you just have to have a few winners in your portfolio where the upside potential really is a lot greater than the downside risk. and you have a few winners that beat out all your losers and beat them by a fairly large margin, right? I think all companies are, you know, one way to think about it would be we're growth investors hoping to make companies that in 15 years will appeal to value investors. Um, Value investors tend to be, I would argue, a little bit rearward looking. Um, Certainly, if you're talking about buying at a discount to book value or assets, um, that is by definition rearward looking. I think even as value investing, though, you're still thinking about what are the forward cash flows of this business? Uh, and projecting into the future, you know, that's really the, um, I think the big difference is we have to be, not only are we forward looking, but we're forward looking five or 10 years, and we are projecting forward with very limited information. Interestingly, uh, we've done, you know, we've been in the business for quite a while, and we've run a lot of analysis retrospectively on what's actually happened with our investment. You know, where we have been most wrong is actually in how big some of the winners could be. So we have had companies worth many tens of billions that we never would have expected to get that big. You know, and then we've had company we when we invest, obviously we don't think any of the companies are going to be zeros, but some of them are. So we've been wrong in both directions, but the we've actually one of our biggest forecasting errors, if you will, has been underestimating how big some of these things can be. Interesting. You weren't as forward looking on some of them as you had put in your calculations, right? They were a lot bigger than you had expected. Oh, certainly. I mean, Twilio, for example, is worth significantly more than $10 billion now. And I would not have projected a value that high when we made the investment, although we're certainly delighted that it is. So in addition to future cash flows, what are some other metrics that you look at? So I'd say metrics and then business factors. So one of the biggest things we look at are moats. Um, and this is where I think we would agree with value investors like like Buffett, for example. Businesses need to be defensible because successful businesses attract competition. That's the nature of a, a healthy market ecosystem is profits attract competition. Moats can be technical in terms of you know R&D that is very difficult to replicate. It can be intellectual property base that's protected, like in, for example, the pharmaceutical industry with patents. Uh, it can be uh, network effects, like with a, with a Facebook or Twitter or or an Uber. Um, there's really all sorts of different kinds of barriers to entry. And um, that's something that we focus on a lot is what are businesses that will have increasing moats as they scale. One of the things I look at a lot is um, in software, you know, software companies really live and die based on can you sell the product for a price that compares favorably with the cost of selling the product. So most Software companies spend more of their expenses as a percentage of revenue on sales and marketing than they do on research and development. And so one of the things I focus on quite a lot is how hard is it for you to sell customers? And then once you've acquired those customers, how long do they stick around? Do they renew their contracts every year? Do they churn? Um, those would be some of the metrics that, that we look at. But I think, you know, moats is probably, as, as I've reflected back on 15 years of investing, moats is probably the hardest thing to estimate and also probably the most important. Gotcha. So that durable competitive advantage that differentiates a startup from the incumbents or just competitors that they're going up against, right? Uh, right. 
I want to talk about the, the two-way demand that entrepreneurs seeking investments have and then the venture capitalists seeking to invest their money. There's like that two-way demand. Venture capitalists want to put their money in and entrepreneurs want to get investments. So how do you describe that kind of two-way dynamic of demand between both entrepreneurs seeking capital and venture capitalists looking to deploy capital? Yeah, I think you know it, it really is um, the best investors and also I think the best entrepreneurs view it as a long-term partnership. You know, you'll be working as an entrepreneur um, or really as an investor, either way, you will be working with the other person for many years, you know, five, 10 years, sometimes more. I'm, I'm still on the board of Box 13 years later. You know, if, if my involvement with Box was a, uh, a baby, you know, it would be in middle school <laughs> to give you a sense of kind of the duration of some of these relationships. So, I think that people look at it, you know, as really, uh, I think the best entrepreneurs take their time. They get to know the investor and vice versa. Um, and it's not something they, you know, kind of jump into casually. Um, sometimes you'll hear analogies about it, like being like marriage. And it's probably, it's like marriage that it's even harder to divorce. I think that one piece of advice I got early in my career from a very famous venture capitalist was he said, you know, you sell for the right to buy. And what he meant by that was we are a unique type of investing in that we don't just have to identify the best opportunities and, and recognize them, but then we have to, you know, have the entrepreneur want to take our money. If I was a hedge fund manager, I can just buy the stock or sell the stock. Uh, and I don't need to, you know, have the company's permission to do that. And so um, I think it's very important that while we're evaluating the company, Company, they're also evaluating us. And it, it does create, I think, this interesting, ultimately very productive dynamic where it's not as one-sided as it would be in the public markets, where you know a, uh, there's a much less personal connection between the investor and the company. Um, it's the part I really like about it is we're not just picking stocks. We're actually partnering with entrepreneurs, really getting to know them and really helping them build the business over time. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I totally agree with the point about how public markets and hedge funds and when, when they're investing, it's just a number while you guys are more exposed to the people side of it and you guys can actually build something with that team. I do want to touch on something that is on your uh, profile page on the uh, on your firm's website. It says that you're nuts if you're not bullish on technology in the long term. Could you kind of specify why you say that? Yeah, you know, I think it can be very um, easy to get caught up in the short term, by which I mean uh, the stock market may go up, it may go down, it may go up or down for extended periods. Companies may be overvalued or undervalued at any given time. I think it's important to step back sometimes and look at the broader trend. And I think that my observation at a very high level would be, it seems incredibly clear to me that technology broadly defined is the singular most important driver of progress in our world and our, uh, our really every sector of business and our societies as a global society. I see the pace of technology as accelerating, uh, not decelerating. And I think that technology is truly um, going to be the thing that solves all of the problems in the world over time. It is going to increase standard of living for people. It is going to create prosperity and happiness for people by giving them fulfilling careers or personal lives. I think it will help us solve some of the uh, issues facing our planet like uh, like climate change, for example. And I think it also will create things that inspire us. So for example, um, going to Mars, I think is going to be uh, something that will be extremely interesting. So I think, you know, technology has actually been in the spotlight, I think, for some of the negative reasons. There are certainly times where technology's effect can seem uh, negative and detrimental. But I am a big believer that technology in the long run 
is the fundamental driver of progress in our world. And uh, I try and keep that in mind as I invest, which is fundamentally, we are long technology. And that is a trade uh, that I expect to have uh, for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's that's kind of like your firm's thesis almost, right? We're going to be long technology and we're going to have that in our minds as we find companies to invest in. On the topic of technology, we're in Silicon Valley and we see all this innovation and technological progress going on from AI to blockchain to just the internet back in the early 90s and 2000s. With all this progress and technology advancement going on, how do you determine what's real and what's hype? Yeah, I think hype, I think, has a certain connotation. I'm not sure I'd agree with. I think what's interesting about projecting the future is I think in a lot of ways, it's it's actually, I don't think, that hard to imagine at least what aspects of the future might look like. So for example, I think it is, I would say, 100% certainty that at some point in my lifetime, uh, we will have predominantly autonomous transportation, right? Generally autonomous cars, airplanes, et cetera. I say that because it's just, obvious that the, first of all, the economics of that are so compelling, but also I believe that computers and algorithms have the potential to be safer by orders of magnitude than humans who are get tired, get distracted, uh, get bored, etc. And, you know, I think that will happen. I think uh, entrepreneurs by their nature have a vision and are projecting that vision and saying, come join me in this mission to an, to an employee, come back me with your capital as an investor. It's not that that's hype per se, but it might be early. I think less ideas are just straight up wrong than they are early um, in the technology industry. Certainly some exceptions, I think. And there are parts of the future that uh, if I think back 20 years ago to what we thought the future was going to be, it certainly is not exactly what we thought. But I think the, when people hype, what they, they really mean is just too early. Yeah, I think it's interesting because that's what happened with the, the internet. It had the whole dot-com bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s. And then slowly but surely, it gained adoption, got some real use cases, and it went from being hyped up in early to being more real and more impactful. Along this idea of big game-changing technologies, what is the one technology you see that's going to kind of change the world and change Silicon Valley? I think the if I had to pick one singular technology or kind of category of technology, I would say machine learning. I think machine learning algorithms or what is sometimes called AI is effectively a computer uh, program that is taking inputs often from sensors. It might be a camera, it might be a LiDAR device or uh, accelerometer if you're talking about self-driving cars, and then is running that through a model that allows it to then take action, very similar in, and oftentimes to what a human would do. So it might allow a computer algorithm to recognize faces on video. It might say be able to say, this is a stop sign, they need to stop, or there's an object uh, in front of me. Um, it might be something that controls the temperature uh, in your home or the various functions of your home. It could um, suggest what you should be doing next at work or be like an assistant that automates many of the manual tasks and allows you to focus on the higher value, uh, more creative aspects. I see machine learning beginning to be deployed in almost every industry, by which I mean main, mainstream industries from healthcare to transportation, to pharmaceuticals, what have you. And I would compare it to me, it feels very much like computers in the, I'd say, 70s, 80s, and 90s, where computers went from being fairly niche to being really prevalent everywhere. I think the big arcs in my lifetime have been computers in 70s, 80s, 90s, mobile, which sort of started in the late 90s, but really kind of accelerated with the iPhone in, in 2007, so really in the 2000s and 2010s. And I think the next two decades are going to really be defined by machine learning and the applications of that. It's intriguing that there's every decade or every 
few decades, there's some kind of transformative technology that, you know, as its name suggests, transforms the status quo. My next question is, you know, in your 15 years of being a venture capitalist, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about investing? So if I think about what I've learned in business, I'd say the biggest thing is uh, that business is made up of people. And so some aspects of that, I think the first thing is your reputation is made over years and decades. It can be lost in an instant. My success now is the result of honoring my commitment, um, treating people fairly, and uh, you know working hard for many years. And I work very hard to make sure that I am upholding that every day. Um, the other thing is just that um, there's a lot of ambiguity in business. So contracts may say one thing or agreements, but oftentimes circumstances change. Those agreements, as well-intentioned as they might have been, don't really capture the spirit of what was intended, or there's some corner case that pops up. And I think it's just important to be sort of fair-minded and flexible. And I think that particularly with the kinds of businesses that we're involved with, things just change in unpredictable ways. And I think if you approach things from a spirit of partnership, and if you are open-minded and treat people fairly, that will serve you very well. And so that's probably been my biggest learning is just to um, you know, when in doubt, do the right thing. It's very, that applies not just to business, but just life in general. For sure. My, my next question is kind of about advice you'd give to people in the younger generation. So you, you have two kids, right? I do. Yeah. So what are some of the lessons about investing, whether that's, you know, personal finance or, or your type of investing? What, what lessons about investing have you given to them, if, if any, so far? Yeah, I think um, so. My my kids are uh, just turned twelve and, and fourteen, so they're just getting to the age where this is becoming really important. Yeah, um, you know, I think there's some basic things that I would encourage any kid, you know, in terms of understanding how to prioritize and allocate spending. The idea of working within a budget as opposed to just spending money without thinking about kind of how much money you have to spend. One thing I tried to talk to my kids about is um, debt and the the dangers of getting into debt. There are types of debt that I think can be useful tools. So I think, for example, buying a home with a mortgage can be an appropriate thing to do. I think um, a student loan that allows you to get an excellent education and improve your future earning power can also be uh, a very appropriate form of debt. But it's very easy for people to get caught up in frivolous debt spending on things that are like, you know, buying a new TV or computer, or video game, car, whatever that they can't really afford. And I think that, you know, that can really set people behind. So debt, you know, the most powerful force in the world, as Warren Buffett says, is compound interest. Yep. Debt is that, but in reverse. So that's compound interest working against you. And so I've talked to my kids extensively about that. I think, you know, the last thing I'd say is in investing, understanding the difference between price and value. So price is what you pay, value is what you get. And those two things are not always the same. Yeah, I think it was Warren Buffett who actually said that, right? Price I think, is what you pay. Yeah, I think I've quoted him four times already on this podcast. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> you, would, you would not go wrong just quoting Warren Buffett. <laughs> That's so true. And as far as first episodes go, Josh, thanks for joining us on ours and making it special. I'm absolutely sure our listeners have learned a lot from you. Great. Thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to talking again in the future. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to the first episode of this podcast. It truly means the world to us. Please give us your thoughts and feedback on today's episode. What you liked, disliked, what we could do better. Thanks to the amazing Josh Stein for the enlightening conversation. I hope you guys learned more about venture capital in this episode. Once again, we are really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email streetfins at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content, and to subscribe to our newsletter. 
Join the Street Fence community and follow us on social media, links in the description, and share us with your friends so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.